For those of you who are going through the listening guide, you know that we've been in Second Chronicles chapter 29 this week. And I'm going to be in Second Chronicles 29 this week. And you're probably thinking, why on earth would you do that? Well, I'm going to be looking at something that, that Richard has only mentioned in passing uh, just to highlight it and illustrate its great need and importance. Consecrate yourselves. That's a command that we see in Second Chronicles chapter 29. And it's actually found in verse 5. So you have to ask yourself, if it's time to seek the Lord, that's preachy. That sounds really good when pastors get together and, and, and throw out sermon ideas. But what does that look like, right? Many times we can grow greatly frustrated with spiritual truths or, that are turned into quips. And we think, how does that look? What does that look like? How does that work? Seek the Lord. What does that look like? Especially if, if, if you've come from a, some kind of a religious background that has you looking off out there somewhere for something and you're not quite sure and it never came. Or, or if you were told you should never do that because then that's you know, violating some rule. And so you think, seek the Lord, how do I do that? Well, the word consecrate is actually where the definition of the answer is found. In order to seek the Lord, that's what we have to do. In honor of God and His Word, let's stand as we read. What I'm going to do is start off in verse 1, though. And then I'm going to read through verse 6 of chapter 29 of Second Chronicles. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now, sanctify, or better translated, consecrate. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. And they have forsaken Him and have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord. And turned their backs on Him. Let us pray. God, as we come as a church corporately seeking You. We realize from the example that Hezekiah set forth. That there comes a time of consecration. These are... This is language that we don't use at all in our day. 
It's been confined to the religious annals of history. The library books of stuffy ministers and dusty libraries. But God, how desperately your church needs consecration. And so, Father, at any time in this space today, that you will to assume the stage, we would be so happy to oblige. Teach us what it means to consecrate ourselves and have the preeminence that you deserve as the maker of heaven and earth. And move with power over us like a mighty wind. And for all those here who do not know you, God, may they have the fear of God put in their heart so that their only plea would be, Jesus, save me. Focus our attention like a laser now. In Jesus' name, amen. You all remember, if you've listened to the sermons this week, about how Ahaz was a wicked king and he walked, notice difference in chapter 28, he walked in the ways of the king of Israel. When I first read that, I thought, that's strange. Ahaz is a king of Judah. Why does it say he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel? Because that's who he emulated. Jeroboam, the one who went after golden calves and bulls. Jeroboam, the one who created a false altar. Jeroboam, the one who brought in all manner of evil and wickedness. Jeroboam, the one who assaulted the prophet sent to him. Mocked God. That's the one Ahaz emulated. You see, the devil always has, and will always try, to circumvent the truth of God by a falsehood. Sometimes it's abrupt and very contrast, and sometimes it's not so easy to tell the difference. The answer and the evidence is in the fruit it produces. You see, under Jeroboam's economy, he made, the Bible says, priests out of every class of people. Anybody that wanted to could. But under God's economy, that was an exclusive right only to the tribe of Levi. And the priesthood among the tribe of Levi was exclusively and only to Aaron and his sons. That's why they don't like it. Because with the God of the Bible, there is a way in which you walk. And it's His way. You don't mess with it. It's for your good. And it's for His glory. You see, the thing is, what I'm trying to say, is there are a lot of people still in our day seeking religion. But they're not seeking relationship with the God who made them. It's much easier to seek religion and religious exercises than it is to seek God in repentance and faith. Therefore, that's why repentance is often alluded to in the Scripture as a gift of God. 
that He grants. It's from His mercy that it comes. How else could you see your wickedness? How else could I? But then, once you find yourself being born again anew by the mercies of God, you find yourself in a world that is antithetical to God in everything that it does. Jesus Himself bore out this fact when He said that our three main enemies in this world would be the world, the flesh, and the devil. And nothing's changed. The devil can't be everywhere at one time, though he has a lot of henchmen that can be stationed about. But there's an enemy that you always have with you that I find we get more trouble from than anything, in which case, when that thing gets messed up, then the devil likes to leverage it against us. And that's our flesh. And of course, we live in this world. And you can't escape it. It's, it's like going outside and trying to escape the wind. We're always in it. So what do we do? And how do we seek the Lord then? Well, this is what we're seeing. And this is what I wanted to tell you about. I want you to pay first attention to this word consecration. We just saw it here as we read in verse 5 and 6. And it's actually mentioned six times in chapter 29. Now, if you have a new King James, probably a King James, it's going to read the word, we'll read sanctify. But in the Hebrew, the more accurate translation is consecrate. And some of you may think that consecration and sanctification are, are, are uh, together, all in one. But they are, they, are, they are mutually exclusive, but they are in the same family. Consecration. This is from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary, so you can see I went way out on a limb. Separation, it says, of persons, utensils, buildings, or places from everyday secular use for exclusive dedication to holy or sacred use. Does that define your Christian life? Does it define mine? Does it define the rhetoric from the church in our nation today, much less the Western nations? Because I just got through reading the Voice of the Martyr magazine last night. And it rips me every time I read it. And I read about a young man. And I can never say their names. But I believe he's from Niger. He was brought up Muslim. He used to wear black and, and white every day. To blend in with the other Muslim kids and students in his village. In his picture in Voice of the Martyr, he has on a hot pink shirt with a big cross around his neck. And he said, when I came to Christ, I no longer wanted to blend in. I wanted to stand out. I wanted them to ask me why. And I'm thinking, you're going to get yourself killed. And he will, probably. But he said he's so full of love for the Lord, if he dies a martyr, then he will die a happy man. That's his faith. That's his... He has consecrated his whole life for one thing. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ And when you look at the pictures in that magazine, 
you're talking about very poor, dirty villages. I don't think there's a lick of concrete to be found, much less asphalt. They're dirt floors. But he's preaching. He's sharing Christ. He doesn't do it exclusively. He has a trade that he works. But his number one goal in life is to share the gospel with as many people as he possibly can. All he has in this world is the Lord and the Lord's church. Because his father disowned him and cut him out of the inheritance. He was on his own. But Jesus has him. And he wouldn't trade it for a thing. That man's consecration at 21, I think, is miles ahead of mine. He has a different perspective, a different world view, so to speak. It's pretty simple for him. To live as Christ and to die as gain. We ought to be careful, though, when we think that way just a bit. God bless us, and He has blessed us. We live where we live, and we have all the comforts we have. Our children walk around with little baby shoes that light up on the end. Okay, our, 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 little, our house is, far as I know, no one here has dirt floors. We have running water that's clean every day. The electricity seldom ever fails. And it's gotten to the point so that the greatest tragedy that seems to happen to interrupt our day is if the internet goes out. Because then you can't access your, your online TV shows. And that's true. But I'm going to ask this question. Is there a way? Do, you, do, do we think that God gave us these blessings to cause us to stumble? Or do you think he intends for us to have these blessings but still serve him with the same zeal as that young man there in Niger? But we look at the blessings past the one who gives them. Our consecration is all messed up. So let's read on. In the Bible, consecration was demonstrated by an appropriate rite or vow. Hebrew expressions imply separation, dedication. Or, if you like, ordination. When a minister is, is ordained into the gospel ministry, the, the elders and the deacons, depends on where you are, they will come and lay hands on you and you will be ordained into the gospel ministry. You'll be set apart. That's the consecration. New Testament references are fewer but are frequently connote the idea of holiness We'll get to that in a second, but I just want to get in your mind right now. Notice this. Consecration is separation of persons, buildings, or places from everyday secular uses for exclusive use and dedication to that which is holy. That's the Christian life. Not money. Not success. Did you know that God doesn't call you to success? He calls you to Himself. And we just discussed in Sunday school, the American dream is warped out of its sense of blessing more than out of a sense of service. Well, when I retire, I'm going to go get some high black socks, some khaki shorts, and a tennis hat. 
And I'm going to move to Florida and collect seashells, as John Piper wrote in his book. And I'm going to live the rest of my days out in ease and luxury because, after all, I paid my dues. Don't you dare say that as a citizen of heaven. Don't you assume to tell the king what your wardrobe will be this side of eternity. Remember whose you are. Because you might find yourself being called to the mission field at 65. And it won't require high black socks. Consecration is significant in relation both to God and to the world. It is significant because it's weird. This space, I often talk about it. We have consecrated this building for the purpose of what it's doing right now. That means you don't come in here and watch Super Bowl parties. God forbid, and I tell you, soapbox, looking for the soapbox. Any church that gets off into that has missed its mission. Have you seen what that looks like? Consecration is significant in relation both to God and the world. The Apostle Paul spells out the term's meaning in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we'll see in a minute, but stressing that consecration involves a living sacrifice to God. That's the Christian life. A living sacrifice. And I might say, not a boring sacrifice. Its importance in relation to people and things is a basic theme of the Apostle Peter's first letter. In everyday life, each Christian is meant to live out a holy and royal priesthood for God's glory. This is your consecration. Christians consider the consecration of one's own personality by the work of the Holy Spirit to be an important mark of spiritual maturity. How I speak of these things, how I act of these things. Can God, God, here I am. I'm this way. (laughs) But use it. I'm offering it to you. Take my, it's all I got. and, and, And do something like you did with the fishes and the loaves. You took a stick and almonds grew out of it. So, Here I am, a little better than a stick, maybe not as satisfying as bread and fish, but here I am. Use it. Use my idiosyncrasies, my, maybe I'm an introvert and and maybe others are. Use it so that I might benefit them by showing them Jesus. Maybe I am so bubbly that I can't have it enough to just, I got to be with people, but use it so that I may share Jesus with everybody that I flit about with. Maybe I like to talk, fill my mouth, that mostly that you come out all the time. Less of me, more you. God, I don't say much, but when I do, man, may it be seasoned with the Holy Spirit. You see, that's our consecration. Well, now let's talk sanctification. It's different, but it's, it's in the same family. B, 
being made holy or purified. There's a subtle difference there. It is used broadly of the whole Christian experience, though most theologians prefer to use it in a restricted sense to distinguish it from related terms such as regeneration, justification, and glorification. You see, this thing called sanctification is the biggest part of our Christian life on this earth. As my one very southern very Baptist pastor says somewhere back south when I listen to his sermons, you got to be born again. And after that is your sanctification. Here's out of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. Here's how it reads. And this all comes right out of the Tyndale Reference Library. So this was in their article. We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are, now notice this language, we are made partakers of His holiness. That is, it is a progressive work, that it is begun in regeneration, and that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and the comforter in the continual use of the appointed means, especially the Word of God, Self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. That's right out of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, which is right out of the 1689 Baptist Confession. So we've had consecration, and we've had sanctification. And wouldn't you agree, they seem pretty similar, don't they? Look at this. The difference between them. Consecration is something that we do in seeking God. We do that. Look in, look in our text in, in 2 Chronicles 29. It says in verse 3, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. There was activity that Hezekiah began to do in his seeking the Lord. In other words, when you're seeking the Lord... Because you know the Lord, you're going to do things for the Lord. And you're going to start with the obvious things. But then notice next. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square. And this is what he said to them. Now, he's 25 years old. They're older. Hear me, Levites. Now, now notice the word, now. Consecrate yourselves. First off, what's he telling them to do? You need to get yourself fixed towards God. You need to think of yourself as a vessel to be set apart. That's what you need to do. And if you're talking to priests, you're talking about all in those days with the ceremonial law, keeping in condition with the ceremonial law, that means they had to go and get themselves cleaned. They had to make the appropriate sacrifices. We've been talking about that in Leviticus. And we're fixing to get in specifically to the priests in that. But they had to, they had to atone. They had to get the blood shed for them. They had, to be, they had to be made ritually pure. They had to do that. Well, guess what? If you're a Jesus, you've been made ritually pure. So, consecrate yourself. Get off the fence. He had to call the Levites back because under Hahaz, under him, 
They hadn't done anything in so long. You remember what Ahaz did, right? He had the Lord's articles cut up into pieces. He shut up the doors of the Lord's temple. He built temples or statues to to Asherah and Baal all around. The priests were without a job. They were unemployed. They all had big beards. They hadn't cut their toenails or anything. And so Hezekiah says, go consecrate yourselves. Go get cleaned up. And then he says, when you're done cleaning yourselves up, remember who you are, priests, Levites. He says, consecrate the house of the Lord. Carry out all the junk in it. Now, Richard and Roberts in week two is going to start getting into that in week three, so hold on to your hats. He actually asks the question in there, because remember, he's preaching to a bunch of Baptist preachers. Whew. He asked this question. See if you can find it when you're listening. What needs to be hauled out of your churches? After that, in verse 5, he says, Consecrate the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Now, I'm going to bring this down to a little more application. I don't know about you. I only know about me. But boy, there's a fight rages within me daily. There's a holy place in my soul. Do you know that? That's what the Bible says. If you're in Christ, the very Godhead lives in you. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You're no longer your own. And there's a holy place. That's why, that's why Christians never should fear about being possessed by the devil. By the very fact that God is in you, he has an allergic reaction and has to flee. But most of us fall, fall sway to him standing off over there for a distance and giving us some shouts. I'm scared of the dog barking at me behind the fence. God's saying, but he's behind the fence. Oh, okay. Let me ask you, carrying the rubbish out of the holy place of your heart, what does that look like? What's in there? Let me try it this way. What's in there? I know it's in mine. All kinds of stuff. And just when you get one thing pulled out, there'll be another thing pop up. It's like weeds in there. Kosha, Russian thistle, wild geranium, all that deep-rooted nasty stuff. It drinks Roundup just to be have fun. <laughs> Consecrate yourself. What does that mean, preacher? I'm saying afflict your soul, avail yourself to God. Say, here am I, I'm an undone Make me whole. Make me right. Expose my iniquities. Use me, God. We see that sanctification in verse 5, as I said, but we also see it in verse 15. 
And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. So they, they are consecrating and cleaning up and carrying out the garbage. So that begs the question, well, I guess then it's possible for a Christian to put on weight. Yes, it's all kinds of possible for a Christian to put on some ungodly weight. Get it off. How? That's between you and God. You've got an instruction manual to tell you how to do that. Remember this. Immorality in life proceeds from apostasy. Proceeds apostasy in doctrine. Immorality in life proceeds apostasy in doctrine. When you choose immorality, you will apostatize, so to speak, from the laws of consecration. You will cast them off. Oh, it's okay. God will still use me unclean anyway, because after all, He is a God of mercy. He's a holy God first. And His mercy extends from His holiness. It's okay. I can do this rank sin. After all, God knows that I am but dust. and He is also a God of justice. And you are profaning His name. Better be careful. Because He said, all who come near to Him, He must be regarded as holy. Wear your consecration. We also see it happen in verse 17. After they went in and they carried all this junk out to the brook Kidron in verse 16. And they began to consecrate on the first day of the first month. And by the eighth day of the month... That's how long it took. They came to the vestibule of the Lord and they consecrated the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. That's how long it took to get the junk out of there. Do you think it's an instant fix? By the way, consecration, you're going to be working on that every day. It'll never stop this side of heaven. Do you know what one of the evidences is of genuinely knowing Jesus Christ? Is you got a desire every day to wrestle with your flesh. You have a, a holy compulsion to be found before the Lord pleasing. And it bothers you when you're not. Oh, by the way, sometimes you may think I yell. I choose, I choose to think of it this way. When a preacher's preaching... If he's preaching the word and his voice gets louder, he's just inflecting. If he gets into opinion, then he yells. Verse 19. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in the transgression that they said, the priests and Levites said, they have prepared and consecrated, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. There they are. They're consecrated. They're, in other words... Consecration is what we do to clean things up best we can. You're not in the right mood for this time of prayer and fasting. Fine. God knows. Do it anyway. Okay. Maybe things are hard. Probably. 
Think about that for a second. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of darkness in the heavenly places. But thank God, our king, he's already defeated him. They're just barking at you from across the fence. Okay? Own your victory. Because it's Jesus. He's the one that died to give it to you. You say, well, I got stuff in my closet. You got a closet. Okay. None of it is going to overshadow the grace of Christ in your life. Sanctification is something that God does for us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, But we, all, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now notice this. Through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, that sounds like something that happened to me. See it? It's by the Spirit. By God's electing grace. By the Spirit. You may get yourself prepared, but God's the one that does that major work of sanctification. You may say, I want to be set apart as holy and I've done all I can do. But Jesus comes along and does the work on the inside and says, now you are. You go from wanting to be and looking the part to being holy and being the part. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11, try this verse on for size. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now who's doing the sanctifying? He is. Jesus is. Notice it's not consecration. It's sanctifying. And then in Hebrews 10.10, And by that will we have been sanctified. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Who's it come through? Jesus Christ. In 10.14, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So consecration, as we see in 2 Chronicles, is something they did. If we overlay that under the new covenant, we see us coming together in times of prayer and fasting. Maybe whatever you're fasting from, whatever that looks like for you in your own personal life, you're taking time out of your day to, to, to listen to the sermon, to fill out the little booklet, and you're praying, trying to pray more. This is you consecrating. And I just want to know, are you? I'm so glad if you're in Jesus. Thank God that we're sanctified. But I don't know that we should ever stop consecrating. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm not trying to consecrate so I can gain something with God. I just want to be used more. Remember the definition of consecration. What we do to get things prepared and ready to be used. It's what we do. The part he does. That's the part we're after. God, I brought you this. I brought this big old washtub of my life. And I'm setting it right here. I even, I even cleaned it with a brush. I rinsed it with bleach. It's as clean as I can possibly get it. Now, God, I... Would you please fill that thing up? Because I want to jump in. Is that your heart? Is that what you want? Because that's what I want. That's what I want. I'm going to read you a story. 
I had planned on reading the story, but I'm going to read the story. Okay? This is out of my book, one of my books, called Revival and Revivalism. This took place back in 1776 in America. These are some accounts of a couple different guys. Above seven years have I been exhorting my neighbors. In other words, he's trying to talk to his neighbors about the gospel. But very few would hear. Now, blessed be God, there are few that will not hear. Few would hear. Now there are few that won't hear. Something changed. Something was wrong and something changed. He goes on to write, Another man, describing how Christians were filled with love and praise during this awakening, this revival that hit America, surely this was one of the days of heaven. They describe it, such a day I never expected to see in time. In a supplement of uh, the one account from a man of the revival, uh, Thomas Rankin was a Methodist preacher in those days, described a service at a chapel on Sunday, June 30, 1776. Now you listen to this. At four in the afternoon, this is from the preacher. He's preaching in one of those pulpits that's up kind of like this, but it's round and you stood in it. Okay, you had to go up to it. At four in the afternoon, I preached again from the text, I set before you an open door and none can shut it. That's what he was preaching from. I had gone through about two thirds of my discourse and was bringing the words home to the present. Now, when such power descended... That hundreds fell to the ground and the house seemed to shake with the presence of God. The chapel was full of white and black. He's talking people. This is in Virginia. And many were, th- were without that could not even get inside. Look wherever we would, we saw nothing but streaming eyes and faces bathed in tears and heard nothing but groans and strong cries after God and the Lord Jesus Christ. My voice was drowned amidst the groans and prayers of the congregation. I then sat down in the pulpit. (laughs) He just sat down in the pulpit. And he says, both I and Mr. Shadford, the man that was there with him officiating, we were so filled with the divine presence that we could only say, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Do you, uh, do you sense the specific height Of what God can do when his people begin to pray that way. Can you imagine? I've tried to imagine having to just sit down. Because God had just taken over. When you couldn't even approach this altar because of the people laid out in front of it. No theatrics. Just sheer brokenness. And the sheer presence of God. Now don't you think that changes things. Oh I got to add this. I always get these names wrong. McCullough. McCullough is, a, is an agnostic his, history writer. You, you, you might see his books at Costco sometimes. David McCullough. He's an agnostic fellow. And uh, he made a statement. Now you watch this one. 
He said, when asked about the current demise of America, and he's wrote a lot of history, his, his, his saying was this, America's only hope is another religious awakening. How bad does it have to be when even the agnostics want that to happen? That, that, was, that was from David McCullough. And he says, look, you can't deny the trajectory the nation has been at various times. And then these religious, he calls them religious awakenings. When they happened, it changed that trajectory. And he said, unless there's another one, it's finished. And he said, with all practical purposes, the great experiment is finished. But even he can't deny what God has done. And what I just read from you, what I, what I just read to you, was one of the examples of many that God did in those days. Well, how does consecration and sanctification come together? That God's mercy does not automatically produce the obedience of God expects is clear from the imperatives of the passage. I think, I, yeah, I got to read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Do you think that's the rub? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice but notice both consecration and notice uh, sanctification at play. We see sanctification first. Brethren, by the mercies of God. And we see consecration that you present yourself, your bodies, your lives, your money, your time, your talents, your children, your family, all of it to God. He calls this good and acceptable and God's perfect will. That's what revival does. It makes you want to hunger to do that. And so I was going to read to you from Douglas Moo, a commentarian on the book of Romans. He writes that God's mercy does not automatically produce the obedience God expects is clear from the imperatives in the passage. But God's mercy manifested in His Spirit's work of inward renewal does Impel us toward the obedience that the gospel demands. God demands us be holy. God's spirit will compel us to be so. We experience God's mercy as a power that exerts a total and all-encompassing claim upon us. Grace now reigns over us. It is therefore entirely fitting that our response is to be one that is equally total and all-encompassing. The presentation of our entire person's a sacrifice to God. And then lastly with Peter. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. You were cleansed. Sanctification. When you obeyed the truth. Consecration. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again. But not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever. Because it comes from the eternal living word of God. I'm just going to finish with this because I have still way more. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, 
verse 18 and 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's not correct. That's not. So I'm going to read it in my Bible then. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Ishkar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone. And I like verse 19. Who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers. Though he is not cleansed ceremonially, and the Lord listened to Hezekiah. And it said the Lord healed the people. The Lord healed the people. We can't do everything that... What else can we do? Right? But God can do it. And being in this time of prayer and fasting, what you do at home, what I do at home, the consecration with which we approach God and which we position ourselves before God... We depend and unite that with the sanctification that Jesus has given us. There's only one place you can end up. And that is with a holy visitation of God. And that's going to manifest in any way He sovereignly decrees. I'm not going to put a lid on that. I'm going to ask JT to come. Here's, here is the, the challenge for today. Have you given yourself holy in consecrating yourself to God during this time that we've taken on as a church to seek God? Are you giving it all you've got? Or do you still carry with you a laissez-faire attitude? Kind of a, well, whatever. Or is it a no matter what I do? I'm going to do everything I can to do my best during this time. And I'm going to pray that God will use it. Not only in my life, but in the life of others. And we can do that because we know Jesus. It all begins with Jesus. So take a moment where you are to pray. The altar is open. JT sings. Let's just ask that question. Am I pursuing this consecration?